Yeah, so for those of you who, um, I'm pretty sure you all kind of tracked at least semi along <laughs> the series enough to know that we're in Advent at the moment. Um, and we're looking at um, exploring why the incarnation is good news. And we spent a little bit of time at the start kind of getting everyone's reflections on how they first heard or um, how they have um, previously understood the incarnation to be good news. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of different perspectives on that, some which people still find helpful and some which people think, yeah, this is kind of what I was told or taught, but uh, for various reasons, it's not <laughs> that helpful for me anymore. And I've kind of grown beyond that. So we thought we'd explore uh, that for, for Advent uh, and look at the incarnation um, from, different, from different angles. And so I want to start this week, uh, yeah, with a, um, a passage from Luke. And so I'll get Warwick to read it. And what we're looking for in this, uh, I think you're all pretty familiar with our, our process with scripture is we read a passage and then rather than trying to uh, tell each other exactly what it means and use it as a little, you know, teaching moment for everybody, we try and explore it with openness and curiosity. One of our communal practices is to try and open up scripture rather than close it down as if uh, everything was a singular moral lesson. So we're going to ask the questions of it of what do you notice or wonder about this passage? And we're going to add a subsidiary question, extras for experts, of where do you see good news in this in this story? So I'll get Warwick to read the passage from Luke. And this is uh, Luke chapter 13, verse 10 to 17. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She had been bent double for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Dear woman, you are healed of your sickness. Then he touched her, and instantly she could stand straight. How she praised God. But the leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. There are six days of the week for working, he said to the crowd. Come on those days to be healed, not on the Sabbath. But the Lord replied, you hypocrites, each of you works on the Sabbath day. Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and lead it out for water? This dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right she be released, even on the Sabbath? This shamed his enemies, but all the people rejoiced at the wonderful things he did. Lovely. So since there's so few of us, I think you can just unmute yourself if you have a, a noticing or a wondering or a response of how this passage makes you feel or where you see good news in it. I, I actually can't remember the story or the bit where he says you hypocrites, you, you know, we all work on the Sabbath day. I don't remember Jesus saying that line before. I was curious to see that. I, um, I noticed that uh, Luke, who was supposed to be the doctor of the group, has uh, diagnosed an evil spirit. And I thought, that's interesting. Mm. <laughs> I have to say, kind of on that, sorry, it's not really good news in interpretation. It's my um, feminist coming out, which is that um, I'm kind of really tired of hearing these stories of these women being crippled by evil spirits. You know, like it just gives me the shit. Sorry, this is being recorded, isn't it? Um, because today actually it's I was really <laughs> Just delete this bit. <laughs> there was this, I was reading this article today about in the Guardian about the Yorkshire Ripper who um, has recently died 
and how women who were sex workers were just kind of um, seen as not being as being incidental victims, and then it was only when innocent mm. uh, people were being killed, like children who weren't and people who weren't sex workers, that actually the police started to react and started to actually do something about it. Mm. And so this type of thing, always this whole like. I don't know, women crippled by spirits. I just feel like it's this theme within the Bible and I just, yeah. that's my noticing. <laughs> that, the helplessness of it all, like, yeah. And we just need a, a man, I know it's Jesus, but, you know, just need a man to come and save us. <laughs> exactly. To, to compare you to oxes. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, what I notice um, against that is the number of women that Jesus actually takes notice of, who actually lift up and um, uphold them. This is a woman who, by the sound of it, was in full view, but everyone just overlooked her and didn't even notice her. But he noticed her, he picked her out, mm. and he took the time to heal her. And there's so many other stories about where Jesus interacted and he had uh, meaningful, uh, uplifting conversations with women and treated women the same as he would he treated the men uh that's something that i notice is coming through in here and his defense of a woman where we had the um leaders saying the you know the subtext i would read as she's not worth breaking the sabbath rules for mm. Mm. that's interesting that's much less cynical viewpoint <laughs> <laughs> Both can be true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's true. Both are true. Mm, mm. <laughs> yeah, I must say, I, um, it's interesting that you noticed that. I, I, I noticed the thing of, yeah, I was imagining a synagogue a crowd and it, it says when, uh, when Jesus saw her, he called her over. Mm. So she wasn't even petitioning him, if you like, or... Um, it appears yeah. as though she wasn't saying, oh, pre just help me. But in amongst whoever was there, Jesus saw her and he called her over and, and said, dear woman, you are healed of your sickness. Mm. Yeah, so it was sort of whether he was scanning and, yeah, there was something about, about that that he, he saw her and called her over. Mm. Jane, there's, um, there's something that uh, notwithstanding questions around demonology and notwithstanding questions around uh, feminist readings and that kind of stuff of um, just this moment in time where uh, someone in a, in, a, in a vulnerable position or a difficult position is caught between two different ways mm. of seeing their lives, you know, and one is a constraining moment like, no, we can't do this today for you versus the other is no we can do this today for you mm. and it kind of um in some ways I, I kind of extrapolate that to so many of the issues we have today of vulnerable difficult people um sorry difficult people difficult situations mm. that people find themselves in and there's competing ideas of how we should help or mm. get involved um and then how important it is for us to I think maybe perhaps take the side of a, uh, of a more generous approach to those situations, you know, anyway, that's kind of, I noticed that tension. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. 
Um, I've got to admit that the last few weeks, every time I'm here, I'm like, oh, good Lord, there's a lot of Jesus in Advent this year. Was it this <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Things we'll admit in a smaller group. Um, and the thing that I appreciate about this is that there's a sense of the humanity of Jesus in this that maybe I haven't felt in, like, possibly that's just my own kind of, oh, sweet Lord, do we have to hear so much about Jesus? baggage over the last few weeks but this one felt a little bit more like a human personage which for yeah. me is the kind of helpful and important part <laughs> <laughs> that's good <laughs> okay cool um so a, a, a couple of little <laughs> small disclaimers um i think it's important that when we're looking at um the kind of Jesus Pharisee confrontations that remember that Luke and all the gospels were written by Jesus fanboys. And so obviously, um, yeah, everyone, <laughs> every, um, all of the, all of Jesus stuff in here is intended to make Jesus look particularly good and to make everyone else look particularly bad or to make the Pharisees in particular and the Pharisees in particular, because, you know, so Luke was written around the time where, you know, the Christians were getting kicked out of synagogues by, you know, the, the people who followed those Pharisees as their forebears. And so there's a there's a war, there's a culture war going on. And so the gospel writers are very deliberately using hyperbole at any chance to show the very worst elements of. Oh, hi, Anna and Tim. Hi, Anna and Tim. <laughs> um, to show the very worst elements of um of, of the Pharisees' behaviour and to use caricature and hyperbole and stuff. So I, I think we should give them a little credit here, <laughs> at least look with kind eyes sometimes. Um, but this enters into a long-running conversation throughout um, throughout the Bible, but particularly throughout the, the Old Testament, um, and particularly between the prophets about um about what matters most. And when we look at scenarios like this, we often see individuals rather than systems at play here. So we see Jesus as a person versus these Pharisees as people, but we don't necessarily see that they represent bigger stories than what the story is, the, this particular story is actually showing us. Um, and there was this long running conversation in the prophets between mercy and sacrifice. And in Matthew 9, when Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and all the wrong people and, and eating with them, which was just despicable because to, to hang out with the wrong people, to dine with them was to kind of take in uncleanness into yourself and into the community. Jesus references Hosea in that place and says, you know, go and learn what this means. I demand mercy, not sacrifice. And so he's referencing in, in that, uh, that, that dining experience, this prophetic argument where some of the prophets were doubling down on kind of cultic ritual and purity uh, to keep Israel pure so that God would show up and do what is necessary um, to set Israel free. And, and, and so all of those prophets are kind of Ezra, Nehemiah, Malachi, they were kind of campaigning against intermarriage with foreigners, foreign, it's always foreign wives that, um, that, that bring Israel down in their view. And so they are, um, doubling down on kind of exclusion and purity and keeping things clean so that we don't corrupt ourselves before God. And other prophets like Jeremiah and Hosea are saying that the problem's not whether you're carrying out perfect practices or not. The problem is whether you're keeping true religion, which is caring for the vulnerable and the marginalized, keeping relationship with God and God's creatures at the center of everything. And so this kind of little vignette in Luke 
um, like enters into that much longer discussion of, of, of what does God actually want here? What's God actually looking for? Is God actually looking for what matters most? Does, matter, matter, does it matter most to follow this kind of extrapolation of the law where we stick to the rules so much that will make people suffer for it because what God wants is kind of the correct tick boxes? Or does what matter most is the situation of the vulnerable and the outsider and the oppressed? And Jesus continuously falls on the side of the prophetic tradition that favors hospitality over purity. Um, we talked in the first few weeks about what our kind of stories of incarnation were and stories of why Jesus came. And one of the, you know, the, the major kind of themes that came through that people have been struggling with was this idea that Jesus came, you know, so, so that God can bear to look at us. Jesus came to save us from our sins so that a holy and pure God could manage to be in our presence. And for most of us, when we kind of talk about that framework of sin, uh, a lot of us come from the kind of like Pentecostal evangelical sphere uh, where, where sin, where there's a long but very narrow list of sins. So sin um, was extensive but narrow. And so it very much came down to personal wrongdoing that put us on the wrong side of God. And we kind of all knew the hit list of what sin was. And so and and just to be kind to that tradition i don't think all of it's necessarily harmful and bad like i think obviously lots of people in our community have experienced the the really dark side of purity culture um of um particularly around sexuality of um the the kind of really heavy guilt and shame stuff around um you know keeping a short account with god and, and all of that stuff but there was there was lots of actual really caring lovely stuff within within that list of trying to protect human relationships and trying to um you know fend off abuse and deceit and gossip and you know stuff that would harm people but one of the the fundamental approaches um sorry the fundamental issues with this approach to sin is that it focuses kind of on the it views humanity in that kind of post-enlightenment view where essentially there's humans as all of these kind of autonomous individuals and and it's all about personal action so kind of like thatcherite there you know there is no society there are there are just individuals um as if the world is just a collection of standal equal standalone units all the same life experience making decisions for themselves completely unaffected by their context and it completely overlooks the way in which we're situated in and affected by power structures much larger than ourselves which is odd because when you look at the gospel stories, there's all of these run-ins between Jesus as representing this kind of one camp and butting his head up against the powers and structures. Um, and so the, the, the issue in that story wasn't kind of um, Jesus as an individual, the woman as an individual, and the Pharisees as individuals having an, an argument. It was about the woman as a person of um, powerlessness and disadvantage in the story and Jesus as a representative of the divine and the Pharisees as holding this long tradition which had had various effects on people without power and privilege. Um, they weren't just Pharisees, they were holders of a tradition which had an impact on people's lives. And so when you look at 
Jesus' life, these kind of like the, the stories and these vignettes have like all of these run-ins with power, um, whether it's um, the religious authorities or the watchful eye of the Roman Empire. Um, the Roman Empire crucified wannabe messiahs on a very regular basis. Um, there were kind of all these desert uprisings around the time of Jesus where someone would, you know, um, go after the desert, kind of pe people would follow, they would claim they were the messiah, they kind of like had this armed uprising that start to prepare weapons and the Roman state would just come and crush them because the Roman state was all about peace, peace by the sword. So you maintain peace by making sure that there's no one strong enough to fight you. And then, yay, everyone gets peace, um, except for anyone who wants freedom. <laughs> um, and so the Romans didn't want to want a riot. The religious authorities didn't want to lose their power. Other religious authorities didn't want to lose their purity because they worried that if the purity of the religion got corrupted, then God would stand against them and 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 wouldn't come and wouldn't set Israel free. And so even within the religious sphere, there's these different power structures all trying to protect different things. Um, but all of all of these nuances um, are missed in my in my upbringing and my previous idea of why Jesus came and died. Um, and a lot of that was to do was with the fact that that framework is built on a particular reading of Paul, and it misses a lot of the the actual gospel narratives in its framework. And so it's all very much about this kind of like spiritual judicial issue, where kind of you know you've got one sin and a pure God, and you have to cancel out the sin, or God can't can't mix oil and water, and and, and all of this thing. Um, and so the kind of Jesus story I grew up with was Jesus was born skip a bit Jesus tells you you know to be good skip a bit Jesus dies and hooray like like everything's fixed that's why Jesus came so that Jesus came so that Jesus could die so that God he could stand in our place and God could actually bear to look at us even though we're terrible um when I first heard that Jesus or realized that Jesus was executed by the state <laughs> by the Roman Empire um, with encouragement from religious powers because he was a political threat. I couldn't really make sense of it, but at the same time, I couldn't believe that I'd missed that. Um, if you asked me who killed Jesus, I would have said our sins killed Jesus. But by sins, I would have meant like, you know, the fact that I masturbated as a teenager, not that, you know, the corporate power structures we participate in, which... Um, you know, kill all that is all that is good and pure. Um, not collective participation in structures that exploit the vulnerable for their own gain. Like that's not the kind of sin I'd be talking about. I'd be talking about my sin and what I had done. And so Jesus came to kind of solve an abstract spiritual problem, which I think has some shades of truth in it, but I think also misses these very concrete battles that Jesus fights um, on behalf of the outsiders. Um, Jesus' life was a threat, and Jesus' solidarity with the poor was a threat. Jesus' solidarity with um, people who were rightly seen as troublemakers was a threat. Um, people's compassion for tax collectors who were participants with the Roman state, who I think our community would rightly <laughs> really disdain, um, was, a, was a threat. Um, if Jesus was the image of the divine, 
then that was a dangerous spanner in the works of the political and religious system. The running assumption in the, in the ancient world was that the gods were on the side of the powerful. So if you wanted to be on the side of the gods, you took the side of the powerful because the gods put the powerful there. Therefore, the gods cared about the powerful and the people in power um, was, were, were right in that sense. I mean, you know, Caesar claimed to be a god. And so when you have Jesus constantly identifying with those on the underside of power, you know, to announce I've come to bring good news to the poor, to announce blessed are the poor, which can also be read as God is with the poor, by implication means that to oppose the poor is to oppose God. And insofar as, you know, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus goes as far as saying that what you do to the poor, to the least, to the imprisoned, to the outside, to the vulnerable, is to do this to Jesus. And that act of solidarity is a major overturning of the power relationship between God and humanity. If the common understanding is that God is with those who are in power, Jesus stands really firmly against that. And so, again, going back to that story in Luke, the issue wasn't so much that Jesus as an individual has compassion for this woman and stands against these kind of grumpy Pharisees who, you know, of their own volition, just kind of think, I want to tick the boxes. There's these major um, conversations and arguments in, within, within scripture about what kind of God is God and whose side is God on. Um, Jesus in the story refused to participate in a system which would have offered him power. And instead, became an outsider alongside the outsiders. He refused to participate in or be silent about a system that perpetuated cruelty, one that would see someone who was suffering and say, you can't have your suffering relieved today because it's not the, it's just not the right day. Like we're, you know, today is the day to rest, to honor God and honoring God is about not working rather than saying, Today is the day where what God wants is to actually relieve the suffering of those who are vulnerable. Um, so Jesus wasn't just speaking out against the individuals involved, but the structure that backed them up. And so I guess my, my, my question is, how is this good news for us today? Um, the, one of the major turning points of my life was standing in our the youth group that I used to look after when I was kind of in my early 20s had kind of been inundated we were kind of a, a white middle class um, youth group <laughs> with white middle class values and had no real exposure to the world outside of that and then at some point the youth group I was looking after just got inundated with kids from um, all the surrounding suburbs from much lower socioeconomic places um, and mostly Maori and Pacific Islanders and um, having kind of lived alongside these kids and knowing the stories of their lives and um, for many of them, the abuse there was in particular communities, sexual abuse was just rampant, violence and poverty and all kinds of um, really difficult things were rampant in their lives. I remember um, this kind of meeting of the waters moment where I, I stood up to tell them the good news of the gospel at our youth group one day um, and I reeled off the script that I'd heard hundreds of times before, before doing an altar call um, and telling them that the good news was 
um, that they were sinners bound for hell because the truest thing about them was that they were on the wrong side of God because they had sinned. And hearing it coming out of my mouth and conflicting with the narrative I knew of their life and just going, the truest thing about you is that you're a sinner wasn't either true or good news. <laughs> um, telling people who had been on the wrong side of abuse for most of their lives that the most important thing they need to know is that God can't look at them because they're so terrible. Um, but the good news is that God decided to love them anyway. Um, is actually a really hideous thing to tell somebody. Um, and this led me to exploring a different road within theology where the good news of Jesus is that Jesus stands with victims. He stares at us from the eyes of the vulnerable. He makes us confront the way in which we benefit from power, whether we've actively chosen it or not. Um, I was thinking about NADOC week this week and about how my former framework has no real response to NADOC week because it's largely irrelevant. Um, in saying, I think my previous response to that would be, I'm not individually and concretely in any active way, deliberately oppressing indigenous people. So what's it got to do with me? Like that, and that's the kind of like post line of an individualistic model that I think that a lot of us have come from. Um, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, who's a therapist and theologian who I'm doing some of my um, thesis work on at the moment, uh, he calls this anti-racist white supremacy. And what he's getting at there is that, uh, is that what we got really good at is dialing in on concrete individual actions in a way that masks the powers that's, or processes that sits behind them. So uh, you can't use a racial slur in the workplace. Therefore, congratulations, we're free of racism. But it doesn't acknowledge the fact that the entire system is stacked against people of color in terms of promotions and opportunity and access and a, and a whole bunch of other things um, that the system's rigged. He also talks about non-sexist patriarchy, where again you can't make it, you know um, individual sexist actions are frowned upon, yet we're also not encouraged to look at the way the entire system is shaped in a particular way. Um, and he talks about you know aggressive action against individual actions can sometimes go to masking systemic oppression um the good news of jesus that we have here demands that we look upper layer and that jesus invites us into a different kind of logic where we don't see sin just and i'm not saying we don't see sin like this at all but we don't see sin just as individual actions but we actually see the collective and what's happening in the in the meta in the in the collective realm as well um helder kamara who's a um brazil the brazil this brazilian archbishop in the 50s um is this famous quote from him where he says when i give to the poor they call me a saint when i ask why they are poor they call me a communist um and i think that ties into this whole thread of jesus being good news and that i was raised to see jesus as being good news because jesus came to save came for me and came to save me from my individual actions. Um, but that Jesus didn't call me to look at the systems and structures that function in the world 
and my participation and my place in them. That version of Jesus didn't um, get me to ask, why are the poor poor? Didn't get me to ask, why shouldn't this woman be healed on the Sabbath? Um, so that, that for me, I think there's genuine good news in this little vignette, not just for that woman, but for everybody that that woman represents. Um, and that Jesus takes her side against the system that would keep her happily not healed because they've done the right thing and taken the right steps. Um, we're going to go into communion in a minute, but um, I just realized that I've talked for kind of 15 minutes nonstop um, without any space for response and stuff. Does that, does that ring true for anyone in the framework that you were raised in? Is there any? Yeah. Any commentary on that or pushback? I'm conscious that the power structure now is the church. You know, the church is the is our modern day Pharisee. Uh, and when I think of someone like Scott Morrison going to Hillsong and and bringing a Christian framework to uh, to support a, an oppressive society that um sees asylum seekers not being granted human rights it sees a lack of recognition of aboriginal rights um I, I, while I, I appreciate the tenacity and courage that jesus showed mm. to battle the the power structure it's resulted in a system where the church has the power yeah and that sits uncomfortably with me. Mm. Mm. There's a really interesting <laughs> SCOMA vignette this week, actually, around the um, the affairs with staffer stuff. I don't know if anyone saw that. Uh, it was really interesting because um, it was a classic example of this, of this a, a kind of compassionate version of this framework where Scott Morrison actually spoke really empathetically and really beautifully about humanity and mistakes and so he, he said you know none of the none of these people are going to be fired because you know i think the australian people understand that people make mistakes and this is just a part of life and you know um you know the, the these you know people have affairs and it's 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 not good but you know if you look out into your communities you'll see that you know these things happen these people immensely regret it and you know i think australians will realize that you know that, 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 that essentially that this stuff happens um which is a really interesting example of this whole thing because what he what he's doing <laughs> despite being really compassionate i don't want to kind of like put the boot in or anything but despite being compassionate what he's missing is the systemic is he's missing the fact that the way the that power relationships work with politicians who hold immense amounts of power against young staffers young female staffers who carry so much less power that people with more power should be held to a much, much higher account for their actions. And it's a classic version of that Christianity, right? Of that's the, in, the these individual actions that you really need to look at. And as long as you look at the individual action in isolation, you know everything that you need to know about the situation while actually missing the systemic, like, yeah. But yeah, no, I, I, I hear you, Anita, like the, 
it, it, it's certainly true, and especially with a Pentecostal prime minister that, yeah, Christianity and what how Christianity is representative holds enormous amounts of power. And despite us being terribly persecuted, um, what yeah. happened too is there can be a, a filter down effect. I can't remember exactly the context and who it was, but it was a newsreader or a commentator yesterday who actually made, and I think it was a comment on that, um, who actually made the, I think, big error of saying something like they need to be accountable. And I thought they with the power imbalance mm -hmm. and they missed that totally. Uh, and that's the problem and that's, yeah, that's what's not being recognised in this. So why were they bagging Christianity quite badly here? Under Sharia law, I think they would have all got stoned. Yeah, possibly. I don't know that Sharia law. And by the, oh, sorry. Just by the way, I think it. I think it's. I think it is our place. I don't. I don't actually think we're bagging Christianity here. I, I think we're looking critically in, inside our own house, which is what I think Jesus was doing. One of the one of the dangers I think of the the way that the Jesus Pharisee stuff is portrayed within the Gospels is that we forget that Jesus was a Jew, and Jesus wasn't attacking someone outside his own system. It was. It was, you know, when Jesus cleared out the temple, it's not because he had disdain for the temple. It's because he loved. It's because he loved the temple. It's because he loved God. He called it his father's house, and so, yeah, like I, I think we should hold our own house to account for, and, and ourselves, like for how we represent God. Yeah. Sorry, was that Percy? Oh yeah, that was me. I was just, I was gonna change the topic, but. Mm -hmm. I was thinking that um, like everything that you said really resonated with me. And I think that's a framework that is most helpful for me as a Christian. But the thing that I constantly struggle with is where responsibility lies in this framework. Like mm -hmm. if um, I guess there's this systemic power then what's like my individual responsibility and that's something that like it's can be like I can't take responsibility for a system but also I can't just let it it go on mm -hmm. without with just and just say oh well, it's systemic so then I, I don't have to do anything about it yeah mm -hmm. yeah I, I, yeah and and how how to resist without being overwhelmed as well like in that like i think you and i have had conversations about that as well percy before mm. um yeah yeah and, and i think like I, I guess it's important to see to to kind of take a non-binary lens on this in the sense of that we're we're both victims and per perpetrators and and we are individuals with, with responsibility but we are also just individuals that we need to hold with an open hand our capacity to change the system, recognizing that it's the sea that we swim in, but also 
looking to know what what it is that we can do. And and again, I think that's why collectives really matter here. Um, so again, in that Bruce Rogers Vaughan stuff, he just kind of talks about one of the um, one of the kind of consequences of neoliberalism is the breakdown of collectives. And so what you essentially have is you have kind of like individual slash nuclear families and the state um, or major or the corporate world, you know, corporate power or major power structures. Um, and so we go, we get stuck in this place where we go, oh man, as an individual, it's so overwhelming to try and work out what I could possibly do about this. But collectives actually have the power to have a collective voice, which can actually resist things together, can actually name things, can actually stand together, can actually give each other nourishment to stand against oppression. Um, and so looking at organizations like, you know, grassroots gather gathering and um, common grace and, you know, and, and ch even churches and movements and things like that with the capacity to actually collect a voice together. So that's not just one of the reasons no nothing changes is you've got, you know, this centralized power, these centralized power structures, and then there's kind of like scattered individuals going, um, <laughs> I, pro I protest, uh, anyway, no one's going to hear me, you know, yeah, that collective yeah. actually matter. Mm. Yeah, definitely. That resonates with me. Anyone else or communion time? I have a Savoy. Didn't want to, I don't want to show off that I'm at the Savoy. It's actually um, Savoy and Total Landscaping Solutions. So, okay, let's eat and drink together. Um, I just want to yeah emphasize with that that this bread and wine, this in my case water and crackers. Um, represent a body and blood that were broken by the state for standing up against the powers that was handed over by a religious institution. This is a body that was broken for standing with the poor and the vulnerable. Um, this body is a body that was a spoke in the wheels of systems, systems that reveal that would even kill God if God got in the way of our quest for power. Um, eating and drinking today is remembering this death, but it's also participating in resurrection life. The power of the divine that says there is always hope, that a life of love will be vindicated and that God will not give up on making all things new. And so I just wanna say, um, what a privilege, privilege it is to eat and drink <laughs> um, electronically with you all, um, to recognize that each and every one of you is also the body of Christ and that in this place, there is hope. There is hope for resurrection life. There is hope for freedom from oppression. There's a collective that can stand for something beautiful and good and true that can look um, honestly but kindly on our in, own individual sins but can also speak about and acknowledge the way and the ways in which we participate um, for or against the marginalized and vulnerable um, yeah so with that let's eat and drink together
I should ask Warwick to unmute all of our microphones when we crack our crackers so we can have that, that glorious that glorious sound. Why does the um, body of Christ have to be crunchy? I've got strawberries. It doesn't. It doesn't. That's <laughs> <pointless. laughs> I don't know if I want to hear like the slurping of strawberries though. It's, it's not as good. <laughs> I think I just stick with crackers. <laughs> Meg was eating watermelon. That was annoying me this morning. So <laughs> what's that like? Um, there's like a name for it to people who are like disproportionately annoyed by others chewing noises. Yeah. Misophonia. Mm. Yeah. I wish, that, I wish that wasn't me.